This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Blue Land. Did you know that uh, about 5 billion, billion? That's a de- I checked that because that's a lot. Plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy. We're shipping around all this water using fuel when we don't have to. Every year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year. This year, maybe turn the New Year's resolution into action that makes a difference by switching to Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's a simple idea. They have refillable cleaning products. They have a nice design. I have them in my home. It looks nice on your counter. You fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blue Land tablets, wait for them to dissolve, and you never have to grab bulky, heavy cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. And refills, because they're small and you don't have to ship a bunch of water across the country, starts at just $2.25. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets, Laundry tablets, everybody, you know what I mean. All Blue Land products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. Blue Land is trusted in over a million homes, including, yeah, mine. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners right now. You can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss it. Blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. Again, blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. Hello, and welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, how are you? I'm very, very cold. Uh, It's unfathomably cold here in Indianapolis at the moment. And even though this podcast won't go up for a few days, it will still be cold when the podcast goes up. Hank... I've been living near the White River for many years now. This is the first time I've ever seen the White River not only freeze completely over, but in fact, there are deer tracks Mm -hmm. that go from one side of the White River to the other, indicating to me that um, a deer very likely survived the traversing (laughs) of the White River. Um, indicating to me that I could potentially survive such a traversing and I could go visit my neighbors across the river. But I'm not going to attempt that because it's too cold to even go outside, let alone risk falling into a river. I mean, you could just you could just travel that way. You could go get yourself a dog sled and just just shoot on down the White River. Um, It's colder in Missoula than it is. In Indianapolis, though I guess that's probably not no, 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 a no. huge surprise to to anyone. No, 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 no. It's like 17 today in Missoula. Uh, according to the Google I just Googled, it's 21 in Indianapolis. No. Sheridan, do you think that right now outside it is 21 degrees? No, no way. No, it is like two at the very most it is between you, zero and two right now are you counting the wind chill and also the no, indianapolis no, star no, website no. is the worst place i've ever been hey don't make fun of the indianapolis star website i've you know i've written for them before um it also apparently according to google it's snowing and then i looked outside and indeed it is snowing so that is a surprise because I was told that it was not going to snow today and I wish that I had not driven my car that can't drive in the snow and now I don't know what to do and I'm a little bit upset. 
uh, I don't know how to proceed. I, all I, <laughs> uh, Hank, it's dark, difficult times. You, That's all I'm telling you. Do you need you. like advice on how to be cold? Because uh, I've I've been in negative twenty. It happens every year yes. here, and then the the wind chill will tack onto that another another couple minus ten or ten or fifteen, and then then you're real. It's just not it's not a good not a good way to be. Um, all right, yeah. Tell me how to be cold, Hank. All right. So, step one. Put on your gloves before you put on your coat because there will be a better seal between your gloves and your coat that way because you can't get your gloves okay. to go over your coat. You want your coat to go over your gloves. Step two. What if I don't own gloves? Step one. Step 0. 0.5. Get gloves and a hat and a coat. You don't own gloves? No, not really. I mean, like, I always have a gl gloves, but then, like, I've always lost one or I can't find one of them. And then I go outside and with one hand stuffed in a pocket and the other hand with a glove. So I'm just sort of, <laughs> you know, what's, I'm just navigating the, the world that, that way. One of the things that I found out when I moved to Montana 15 years ago was that um, having your hands out in the cold is unpleasant. But if mm -hmm. you then touch something with your bare hand and it is below zero Fahrenheit, you have actually injured yourself. So if you touch something mm. metal, when it like the the heat from your hand is instantaneously gone, and like you you are actually in trouble now. This is a very important thing to note. Like it's very different to have your hand out in the cold air than to have your hand touching a cold piece of metal, which will happen if you touch like your door or your doorknob um, or a flagpole. I don't know what you're touching that's metal. Uh, your snow shovel, like don't touch that without your leather gloves on. Uh, and that that is a very important lesson that I learned the hard way. Well, Hank, I just want to tell you one thing right now, which is that yesterday it was colder in Indianapolis than it was on the South Pole. Mm. Or possibly at the South Pole. I'm not an expert in prepositions. Well, it is Also, it is everything that you just said it sounds South like pole, really, so. really good advice. Uh, yeah, but it's it's the South Pole. Everything you said sounds like really good advice. The issue I guess I have with your advice, and I know that this is an advice podcast and we should get to the advice portion quickly, but like the only question I have about your advice is like why I have no, I'm, I'm not going to go outside for longer than like a minute. Like I'm going to take out the trash. Other than that, I'm going to hunker down and wait for this to end. Well, uh, if you live in a place like Missoula, Montana, where the sun starts to go down at 4.30 and, uh, and, the, and it often doesn't come up at all because we only have like 120 days of sunshine a year, it's very important to your health to go outside, even if outside is very bad for your health. So, Hank, as you know, I've been trying to go outside more, but right now I'm just I'm I'm just not going to do it. Rather than get a pair of gloves, I think I'm just going to wait this out. Let's get to some questions from our listeners. <laughs> You're taking the most dangerous possible course. This first question. What in what way am I taking the most dangerous? It seems to be the most dangerous possible course would be to take off all of my clothes and walk outside. I mean, we're not wearing gloves is basically the same as being nude. That, I mean, I, I'd like to see a randomized control trial <laughs> on not wearing gloves when it's zero degrees outside versus standing outside nude when it's zero degrees outside. I'd love to see. I'm not sure how you'd make a double blind randomized control trial because I feel like the placebo would be pretty hard. I feel like it would be pretty hard for people to 
to know whether they were nude. Um, or I feel like it'd be pretty hard for people not to know whether they were nude, but I'm pretty sure uh, science would be with me on this one. But let's, let's move on. This first question comes from Justin, who asks, Dear Hank and John, are hamsters, hamsters, are hamsters yeah, able ham- to live outside in the wild? Where would such a majestical creature be found? This, Do you Justin, know the answer to this, Hank? I do, yeah. Syria. Yeah, among other places in uh, in that, that part of the world. But yeah, the, the hamsters that we have came from a single breeding pair that was brought to the U.S. from Syria. Yeah. Which is... Yeah, and they're, it's called the Syrian hamster. They dig very deep burrows. Their burrows can be like uh, 20 or 30 feet deep because it's pretty, it's pretty hot. And so they mm-hmm. dig 20 or 30 feet down just to get, uh, get nice and comfortable, which might be why hamsters tend to like those very long tunnels that are just slightly larger than themselves. Yeah, no, yeah, that's, exact, that's exactly why. That's why they are encouraged, you are encouraged as a hamster owner to get them those tunnels because they feel at home in them. Uh, gerbils. Wait, let me back up okay. real quick. Did you just say that they came from a single breeding pair from Syria? Yeah, not only did they come from a single breeding pair from Syria, the breeding pair was a brother-sister pair. Whoa, wait, (laughs) so there's an Adam and Eve of, like, American hamsters? Yeah, 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 100%. And, uh, And they've done studies to see if this is, like, problematic, but it turns out that they are wild genetically distinct and, and different from native wild hamsters, they are okay. Um, they seem to be just fine. So apparently maybe they had some good systems for dealing with inbreeding already genetically. I don't know. Wait, so if we went down to two humans, no, which you, I think... That would be bad. By the way, Happy New Year. <laughs> and I, I, I think we all know that 2018 is the year where it's 50-50 whether we go down to two humans. Um, if we went down to two humans, would that be like a medium-sized problem or a big problem? I'm pretty sure it would be a big problem, but I, I couldn't tell you. I've, not, I, I've only read people saying that that would be a big problem. I have not read why people have said that would be a big problem. Okay. Um, yeah. I wouldn't, well, I wouldn't suggest let's just hope that Let's just hope that the half of outcomes in the weird corner of the multiverse in which we find ourselves where more than two humans survive the year let's hope that we're in that half it is really weird to me to think about wild hamsters and gerbils like they're so like so intrinsically pet animals to me i like yeah that it's it's but in in some places in the world they're basically just squirrels right they're basically just ground squirrels the, the version that they have there uh, gerbils are actually right. endangered in their native uh, in their native habitat of Mongolia, where they are a, a crop pest. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I would imagine that they're a crop pest. To be fair, and I know that I'm going to alienate a lot of our listeners, um, I'm not crazy about gerbils. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Like, I, th- I, it's an interesting question. It- like, at what point, like, if an animal showed up in your house, at what point do you treat it like a pet? Like. If a puppy showed up at my house tomorrow, I'd be like, all right, you can stay. But like if a raccoon, this has actually happened recently, showed up in my attic, I wouldn't be like, oh, here's some food and water and let's make a go of it together. You know, Uh, so at what point, like I, I feel like if it was a hamster, I might be able to be like, all right, you're my pet now. But if it was a gerbil, I might be like, I'm gonna need you to do your best out there. Outside in Indianapolis, um, in the negative twenty degree Indianapolis, I, I don't understand why a gerbil and a hamster would be different in that regard. Is it because? Yeah, I mean, I, 
I can't explain it myself. I think gerbils are just a little too big for me. No, they're they're small. They're smaller than a hamster. Maybe I'm not imagining a ger. I am imagining a guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now that I have Googled a gerbil, uh, they also are not welcome because they look too much like mice. They do have long tails, which makes them look a little mousy. Uh, but I had gerbils yeah. when we first moved to Montana, and I liked them a lot. Uh, we named them okay. we named the Mongolian names because that's where they're from. Oh, well, that's sweet. What happened to them? They died na- of natural causes. Well, that is, I guess, the best way to go. This next question comes from Ricker, who writes, Dear John and Hank, my grandmother died this year. That's really, we're going back to our roots, Hank. All death all the time. Uh, And when we were going through her things, not wanting to be wasteful, I took an unopened packet of sponges. They're not special sponges or anything, but my question is, should I treat them differently from normal sponges? It feels odd just to throw out these mementos of my grandmother when they get brown and gross, but I mean, they're literally just sponges. Am I being disrespectful of the dead? Candy is dandy, but I'll always be quicker. Ricker. Uh. That's good. I like, I like good. that there's a person named Ricker in the world. Um, Me too. I, it's, I mean, this is up to you, Ricker. It's how you feel about your sponges. But I think that you've made the decision, which is that they're sponges. And there are, there are other mementos of your grandmother that are important to you and that you're going to hold on to and that you're Maybe are not, not. going to get brown and Th- dirty. That's not in the, that is not in the question, Hank. Not, that is, it, not at no point is it established. Maybe like it was one of those situations where everybody was in the house and there were a lot of grandchildren and all Ricker got was sponges. <laughs> in which case, you do have to keep the sponges. Yeah. I don't know, though. I mean, at what point, like at, at some point, imagine like, over the course, I assume Ricker's fairly young, but imagine over the course of Ricker's life, imagine that every time someone Ricker knows dies, Ricker, and I hope you don't feel like this is disrespectful, Ricker, but I'm, I'm just trying to play out the possibilities here. Uh, every time someone Ricker knows dies, Ricker goes into the kitchen of the deceased person, immediately goes underneath the sink, grabs the sponges. <laughs> and like, that's just kind of, that's Ricker's thing. Everybody knows like, oh, you know, grandpa died. My great aunt. Sally, Sally Sue died like save the sponges uh, for Ricker. Everybody knows that, you know, we can split stuff up the way we want to. But Ricker gets the sponges. Uh, I mean, I have a concern, which is that, like, if and when you cohabitate with anyone ever, they're going to open yeah. those sponges unless you keep them in somewhere very, very good and obvious. Like unless you get like a shadow box for your sponges. Yeah. People are not going to think to treat your sponge collection with respect because of how they well, are sponges. What I liked about this question, Hank, is that it gets at something weird about humans, which is that we um, we like associate artifacts with their history. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is true of anything, by the way, like, you know, costume jewelry becomes far more valuable to us uh, when it's our grandmother's costume jewelry. Yes. Than when it's just, uh, you know, something that you can buy at a party supply store. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to and explain this to me, John. I get I get like sentimentally attached to a rock if I kick it more than three times. <laughs> I feel the exact same way. That fourth time you kick a rock, you think to yourself, well, I better pick this up and put it in my rock collection. <laughs> and then you put it in your rock collection and you look at, at least for me, I literally have a rock collection. I look at my rock collection. and I'm like, I wonder where all these rocks come from. I have no memory of any of them. 
Yeah, well, and it is important to note that kind of all value stems from humans assigning the value to the thing. So that's this doesn't mean that the that that value doesn't exist. It is just as real as all other value. Uh, exactly. That's why I'm saying like you can have a sponge that is incredibly meaningful and important to you. And so I think the call is yours, Ricker. Like when you look at that sponge, do you think like this sponge brings back wonderful memories and this will be a great story to tell my grandchildren someday about their great, great grandmother? Mm. Or do you say like, you know... Nanny would have wanted me to use these sponges quickly and efficiently and thoroughly, which is what, like, when I think about my own grandmothers, I feel like both of them would not have wanted us to remember them via the sponges. Mm-hmm. What do you have of, uh, what do you have from your grandparents, Hank? Do you, do you, do you hold on to anything? Um, I've got a few tools from Papa's tool shed, uh, old cool yep. things, like with this thing that measures how many rotations something would have rotated if you stick it in. Uh, I don't know what that would be used for, but I think that it's pretty cool. Uh, I've got an elephant from from Dad's dad. Um, yeah. I've got some Christmas ornaments from Nanny. That kind of thing. Yeah, I've mostly kept Christmas ornaments because they do have a um, big uh, sentimental value in our home. Although, in many cases, the Christmas ornaments with the most sentimental value are the weirdest Christmas ornaments, and people are always like, where did you get that from? And I'm like, oh, well, it's a long, sad story. And then they're like, tell it. And I'm like, okay, but it's really sad. And then at the end, they're like, well, that was sad. And I'm like, I don't know what I tried. Mm. Next question. <laughs> this next question, John, it comes from Maria, and we're going to stick to the theme. When someone is buried at sea... Do they make the coffin heavy so it sinks to the bottom, or do they leave it to float along the surface? I need to know because I'm thinking that I would quite like to be buried at sea, although I am scared of the sea and of death. Ave Maria. <laughs> That's a good name-specific sign-off. Um, yeah, I, I I do not know the answer to this, Hank. I have to say I am not an expert in burial at sea, and it is something that I have wanted very much to avoid if at all possible <laughs> yeah, you're so a burial at what land do you know guy, what do you right? know about burial you're looking, at sea? you're looking for for a burial at land that's that's sort of your plan correct uh yeah i'm looking for whatever a burial or a cremation at land and then i would like to have a headstone right regardless of whether my body is actually there i, I, I like mm. i like I'm a, I'm a big fan of headstones i like right. visiting the headstones of our Mm-hmm. Uh, relatives, so yeah, that that would be my ideal situation. It's not super important to me because um, I, of course, will not uh, be present. <laughs> right. Um, I find the phrase "burial at sea," which is very clearly the phrase, a little funny because burying does seem to indicate some amount of digging. Uh, that has not happened with burial mm-hmm. at sea. But I did look up some specifics of burial at sea, and you can be buried at sea. The, the laws are different from state to state, but in the United States, you can uh, be buried at sea as long as you get to some place where it's more than 600 feet deep and more than three miles offshore, something like that. You might want to look into the specifics if you're considering mm. uh, this. Mm. Uh, and Sometimes you need a funeral director president, present, and sometimes you do not, but you do need to be in a metal coffin that will sink. And that is also the case for the Navy when they are burying people at sea. They do their best to put them in a a box that is not going to float because that would be mm, probably just a boat at sea then. You would just be in a death boat 
and you'd probably end right. up somewhere eventually. What about the Viking thing where they just put you on a, on a tiny little boat and then they burn the boat? Right. I mean, there's a little bit of a, of a mix there. You know, you get a, a little bit of both. Uh, it, it does seem like you don't want a super tiny boat. You need a boat that's going to get hot enough so that it's just not, uh, I don't want to get too into specifics here, but you want the pieces to be mostly unrecognizable if they show back up somewhere after having been washed around in the ocean. Sure. Okay. Well, I still want to avoid it. Right. No, I, yeah, I, I would like to have a tree or something. I don't know. I feel like, I feel like I'm getting more interested in, as you have said, uh, a place for people to go to. Um, but I, yeah. I, 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 and I like cemeteries. I just don't know if they are, if we recreated the idea from scratch, which of course is not how humans do things. And so I don't expect this to happen. I don't know that we would end up with cemeteries. It might be something more like at this point, a little more friendly and inviting than I feel like a cemetery can be sometimes. I don't know. I think it all depends. So I didn't tell you this, Hank, but this is an amazing true fact. A few days ago, Rosiana forwarded uh, an email that came into my public facing email address um, from the sales team at uh, our local cemetery here in Indianapolis. <laughs> um, I don't want to mess up this the like name. A pre-order. Um, like, <laughs> do you want to pre-order your, your death spot? I, yeah, I, I don't want to mess up the name of the team that she worked on. So I'm just going to make sure I read it. My name is Redacted and I am an advanced planning advisor at... <laughs> cemetery name redacted advanced planning advisor i mean i guess there's sort of like two two kinds of salespeople, right um there's the advanced planning salespeople who try to get out ahead of the issue by by like years or decades and then there's the um you know post planning advisors i don't know i don't know what their team is called the rush team Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. I Anyway, I was like, huh, I guess I am now of an age where it, it feels not that weird for somebody to email me cold and say, have you considered where you would like your eternal remains to be buried? And if, if not, how about our cemetery? John. It is home. It is home to more dead vice presidents than any other location on earth. Was that, um, was that part of the pitch? Oh, no, it's just something I know about that cemetery. Um, Indiana has a really strong history of producing vice presidents who don't become president. It's like a weirdly, Mm. it's not to say that that's going to happen with Mike Pence. Um, (laughs) However, like Indiana has produced Dan Quayle. So many, and Dan Quayle, by the way, is not even dead. Um, So when he does die, I assume he will be buried at Crown Hill Cemetery. Just add to the list. And and then there will be yet one more vice president who never became president buried at Crown Hill Cemetery. Yeah, you got to widen the spread there. Uh, yeah, I was, was going to redact the name of the cemetery, but then I guess I decided not to. <laughs> I mean, well, you, you did give a, a, a telling fact. If we're going to talk about the vice presidents, people can look it up if they want to. The, the question. Yeah. Can I just can I just give you a little list? Sure. Of, of dead vice presidents that are at Crown Hill Cemetery. Yes. All right. Hit me. Vice presidents Charles W. Fairbanks, Thomas A. Hendricks and Thomas R. Marshall are all buried at Crown Hill. Wow. I would not have been able to tell you that those were definitely people. Oh, I mean, none of them are even remotely famous vice presidents. Um, uh, Thomas A. Hendricks was vice president for Grover Cleveland 
Uh, Charles W. Fairbanks was vice president for uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, for a, for a bit um, from 1905 to 1909, and I don't. The other one I don't even know. Well, you've also got a president, John, uh, at Crown Hill Cemetery. Possibly sure. the least, like if you were going to name them, my guess would be that this would be of the world naming presidents the last on the list that uh, of no. what people would would remember. Old Ben? Benjamin. No way. Good old Benjamin. Anybody know the last name of a president named Benjamin Harrison? Harrison. <laughs> Benjamin Harrison. I believe he's the only president, Ben. I, I believe he, you are correct that he is the only president, Ben. Uh, preceded and succeeded by Grover Cleveland. That's right. He was in the he was the meat in a Grover Cleveland sandwich. Uh, which is something that we all should strive to be. Uh, I mean, who, very few people have ever been so lucky. <laughs> oh my as soon as I was like, I have to say these words now. I don't know why, but I'm going to say them. <laughs> Benjamin Harrison is not even one of the 10 worst American presidents. I'm not presidents. saying he's bad. I'm saying he's forgettable because he's from Indianapolis, which is where it's just I think it's I think that vice like like unsuccessful vice presidents are are often from Indianapolis in the same way that like you know you want you want to represent America and Indianapolis is where all the chain restaurants go to try out their first try because it's basically just just distilled America down there. That's right. Do you want to know something interesting, Hank? Uh, when we have the next president, he said, hopefully, uh, <laughs> if there is another president of the United States, um, that will that will be the moment when Benjamin Harrison becomes the exact middle president. Um, Maybe by yeah um, uh, by number. Maybe that's why he's so forgettable because he's just smack in the middle. Like we got the history and we got the the recents. But the middle is just like, oh, I don't know what's going on. Uh, and he was a one. Uh, one term. It must be said, said yeah. that he was a one term president um, and very, very average uh, and slightly corrupt, but uh, more successful than the three other people uh, who, who served in the executive branch of the U.S. government who are buried in Crown Hill because <laughs> all of them never became president. Hank, let's move on to another question before I have to contemplate my mortality any further. Is this one going to be not about death? This question is not about death, Hank. Okay. It is about the death of one's career. It comes from Molly. And the question is, Dear John and Hank, I just started my new graphic design job last month. And as part of the graphics team, it's my job to create the retirement PowerPoint for a longtime employee. I don't know anything about this guy <laughs> or how to make a personable retirement PowerPoint, especially since this is my first job. I barely know how to start, much less retire. <laughs> Dubious advice requested at your earliest oh convenience. God. Never ordinary, always a nom, Molly. A Molly, I get it. I ha I, why Molly. is this even a thing that is a job? Uh, Everything about this situation is a disaster. First off, how unpopular must this longtime employee be oh. that everyone was like, oh, God, who's going to make the PowerPoint for Rick? Oh, I know. We can make Molly do it. She's brand new. Instead of being like, oh, I'd love to do it. Rick's an old friend of mine. It's like the ultimate insult. Yeah, that like, I mean, it's like, hey. You, you oh, Molly, God. you got you to gotta ask around, I guess. You got to get people to send you some pictures of Rick. Maybe find Rick's Facebook or at least his LinkedIn and be like, okay, how long's Rick been with the company? What have his 
job titles, idol, you gotta, like, what are you supposed to do? You can't give this job to a person. It's like, it's like, it's, a it's terrible like calling thing somebody I mean, up and being like, it's, it's my wife's, uh, and I's anniversary. Uh, could you make us like a really heartfelt, uh, video? That'd be great. I'll, uh, send you 50 yeah. bucks. Can you please put a PowerPoint together? Um, I, here's what I would do in this situation. Cause Molly, I don't think this is a great work environment. I'm going to be honest with you. I think you need to move on from this job. And I think the best way to say goodbye to this job is via a really hilarious retirement PowerPoint for Rick. So I think the background music has to be wind beneath my wings. Uh -huh. um, did you ever know that you're my hero? And I think it all just has to be fading in and out of the same picture of Rick. That's just his work ID picture. Just fade in. And it's Rick's ID picture, and then you do that slow fade out, and then it's like, what's the next slide going to be? Oh, oh no, it's Rick's ID picture again, and it's the whole. No. Did you ever know that you're my hero? And then the last, the last frame. The last frame, because I got a great idea for the last frame. Yes, the last yes, frame. Yes, you do the last it frame. It fades out, and it's a bald eagle with the with the picture <laughs> of Rick's ID superimposed over the head. Just Rick's ID picture. That's it. And then it's just oh, like and then maybe underneath that, underneath that in script, it says like Rick, nineteen sixty four <laughs> to two thousand eighteen. It's like he died. Yeah, yeah, like he died. Exactly like he died. Like he died <laughs> and he left behind this photo, um, this <laughs> work ID with a bald eagle. It's beautiful, Molly. And you will never have to make another retirement PowerPoint as long as you are a person working at this company. <laughs> you got I mean I just have to say I appreciate Rick's long-term dedication to the company and I if you can find a way to do that do it but I don't know how to do it without like being like Rick I have to get to know you real quick tell me about your mom <laughs> tell me about your family right. tell me about like how did you get this job where did you start my man what did you want to be Tell me about that summer when you were a commercial fisherman in Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing you might do is like ask Rick about all the things that he wanted to do other than the career he ended up having. And then like Photoshop Rick into those jobs <laughs> um, so that Rick can imagine like what it would have been like if he'd made it to Major League Baseball or whatever. Uh, because I find that that's always something something you want to make people feel upon their retirement. This is such a terrible job to have been given. It is so highly inappropriate on every level. And I hope, by the way, Hank, P.S., I hope that when I retire from Complexly, uh, that there is no freaking PowerPoint at my retirement party. Also, that there is no retirement party at my retirement party. <laughs> Can everyone just please give me $5? Thank you very much. That's a wonderful party. John. Or make a donation to a charity <laughs> no. in my name without having me to be physically present for anything. I, yeah. John. Yes. Can we answer uh, the question that we got the most this episode, which is what do I do with the present that I was given that I did not want? Why yeah. do we still do presents? Oh, I mean, it is a disaster from a macroeconomic standpoint. Like, I why mean, Why do we try to pick what people want when they can just tell us? Like, uh, like we had Liz, who, uh, was it Liz? Who got the quesadilla no, maker? Yeah, somebody got a What a terrible a present. I don't want to criticize Liz's mom for getting her a quesadilla maker. But like, and I also don't want to criticize other people who maybe got quesadilla makers or gave them for Christmas. What a ludicrous Christmas present. Of all the things that can be made without a specific appliance for the job, quesadillas I mean, have to be very near the top of the list. 
the other thing is that like this first of all it's not Liz it's nutmeg uh I don't know why I said Liz it's it, like the thing that nutmeg liked doing is making quesadillas and so somebody was like Liz likes <laughs> it's not Liz somebody was like nutmeg loves making quesadillas so let's get nutmeg a quesadilla maker what no I I liked making quesadillas I don't need to have that step taken out I'm good at it the way that I'm good at it and I like it the way that I'm doing it there's just right. too many things, John. And it's so hard to come up with good presents for people. The McElroys were talking on their last episode about having a special golden acorn that you give to someone instead of giving them a present to be like, here, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, I don't know. I, I got nothing. Here's a golden acorn. And that's, that's the present now. And you can give that golden acorn to somebody else and just pass them around and be like, I thought about you, which is all we really are trying to say. Right. I got actually, though, I have to say, I got really good presents from you and Catherine. And I did think to myself, like, hmm, Hank and Catherine really thought about what I would want this year. And the particularity and specificity of those presents was really pleasant for me. I got a uh, Indy 500 program from 1974, which was really cool. It was really cool to read through that. And it's just like anybody who knows me knows how much I like the Indy 500. And then I got, uh, I can't remember what else, but it was something else. <laughs> and you gave me a signed edition, like a signed first edition of Caleb West Master Diver, which yeah, Caleb, is a Caleb real West Master Diver. It's a classic. A weird thing to have found. And I don't even know how you found it. And it's amazing to me that it even existed. And it is now a prized possession. Luckily, I have an unsigned, unfirst edition copy that I can actually read. Yeah. Nobody knows what Caleb West Master Diver is, Hank. Oh, I think we talked about it. Well, I don't know where we've talked about it, but Caleb Westmaster Diver was the most popular book of like 1896 in America, like the top book in the world and of course, or in America. And of course, everyone has now forgotten what it is, but it's a book about a guy building a lighthouse in yeah. New England. And it's Whose really name, specific. astonishingly, is not Caleb West. No, yeah, no. Caleb West is the diver uh, yeah. that, they, that this guy employs. He's basically like a general contractor and he works with a bunch of like very like hardworking American men on building a lighthouse and they all have very good skills and they never complain about anything except like occasionally the wind. Right. It's a very, it's a story of American uh, like industrialization in an age where like the idea of building a lighthouse was so incredibly exciting that you could sell 2 million books just writing a book about it where nothing else happens. Yeah, I mean, there's like a love interest, kind of, and so on. But yes, mostly there's a lighthouse being built. And the, the writer, uh, Francis Hopkinson Smith, actually built lighthouses. And you can see one of them. Race Rock Lighthouse is probably his best his best lighthouse. It's very cool. Yeah, we'll put it on the Patreon, actually. We'll put, uh, we'll put Race Rock Lighthouse on the Patreon. He also built um, the, the base of the Statue of Liberty before becoming the uh, best-selling novelist of the 1890s in the United States. Fascinating character, Francis Hopkinson Smith. He lived, uh, he lived a thousand lives. He was one of those people who lived mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of different lives. He was also one of the most famous visual artists of his time, and now his paintings uh, are in the permanent collection of many of America's leading museums, and yet his uh, paintings in, in private sales sell for only a few hundred dollars because he is so completely forgotten. Anyway... 
I don't know how it's, we got uh, on that topic. It's almost, it's almost as if we've been learning an awful lot about Francis Hopkinson Smith for a potential project that we've may or may not We've been thinking about it. We're thinking about it. I still don't think we've quite pulled the trigger yet, but we're thinking about it. Anyway, Hank, I want to get to this question really quickly, if you don't mind. It's from Pre, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I moved into my new apartment in Sydney about three months ago. Well, that was your first mistake, Pre. Everybody knows that if you live in Australia or New Zealand, you should live in New Zealand because it has no natural predators. <laughs> it's the thing that I'm always concerned about is natural predators. That's my main concern. Not like commute time or weather, but whether or not something might bite me. That is exactly my main concern. Anyway, the apartment's really cute and quirky, and I have a lovely housemate, but every so often I hear some sort of animal on my roof through the bathroom vents. Again, Uh-oh. this would Uh-oh. not be a problem well, now, in New Zealand. Now I am concerned. Okay. It sounds like a possum, but it could also be a giant rat. Um, I mean, why okay. do you think that those are mutually exclusive? A possum <laughs> is a giant rat. Anyway, this one time I kept some cooked bacon in my bathroom to lure it to my vents to take a look at what it was. But alas, my experiment was unsuccessful. It sounds really cute and I want to see it, but I cannot. Any suggestion? What kind of person? Here's and Hold on, by John. The way, I, yeah. Hold on, John. Yeah. Possums are different in Australia. Are they really? And they're cuter. Wait, let me Google Australian possum. I mean, they're not cute. Oh God! Oh God! Hank, whoa! That is, there's no, that's a disaster. But it's How much that? better than an American possum, oh, which just looks no. like no, no, no. Hard Look at the no. babies. Google no. baby Australian possum. Baby Australian possum, and then oh, you'll be like, God. oh yes, please give me two. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. Their no. eyes are like the size of the rest of their head. They're so I cute. Got, they got I mean, the prehensile tails. I am. This all this makes me love New Zealand ever more. Is there? Let me hold on. Let me Google New Zealand possum, and I bet <laughs> there isn't one. <laughs> I bet there is. Oh dang it! There is. There is one. It's the common brushtail possum. It's the same possum. Yeah, it's mm. the same possum. It swam from Australia to New Zealand. That's a, no. It was introduced by European settlers. Dang European settlers. That's right. It was ruining everything. Um, mm, they're all over the place. They used to be nowhere, but in the last 30 years, they've gotten everywhere. Mm, of course, of course. Well, Pre, what I would do in this situation is just uh, move. <laughs> I do like your openness to the, to the possibility here that it is something that you might quite like to see. I yeah. like that you think that the animal crawling around in your vents sounds really cute. It does not really usually how I respond to uh, the sound of an of an unknown intruder in my home uh, but I, I do like your I do like that perspective I, I like that you think that you think you hear something adorable and uh, that you don't think man I wonder if there I wonder if that is a, a boa constrictor there was at our old office a man living between the floors yeah I remember that there was it was like a 13 and a half half floor issue um, like in yeah. being John Malkovich uh, yeah. I my feeling about this pre is that if you're the kind of person who's not totally freaked out in this situation and you think it's great and you're putting bacon there for this guest like you are of a kind you're a kind of like hardcore and open to the world that I will never be and so I can't give you advice on this topic because you're so far outside the realm of anything that I can understand. <laughs> Which reminds me that today's podcast is brought to you by really amazing Australians. Amazing Australians, unafraid of possums. This podcast is also brought to you by Ricker's Dead Person Sponge Collection. 
uh, just a bunch of dead people sponges. And uh, this podcast is also brought to you by hamsters. Hamsters, they just they just want to be 20 feet under the ground. And also this podcast is brought to you by John's Sad Christmas Tree Ornaments. Oh, you didn't, probably didn't want to ask for that story, did you? No, no. Hank, let's answer one more question before we get to the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. All right, John, this question comes from Krissa, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I'm 22 years old, and I've recently taken a job where my primary responsibility is to plan a series of four-hour-long events four times a year. These events are aimed at nurturing the startup ecosystem in my country, the Philippines, and I'm privileged to have the support of more prominent people in the tech and startup community, but they are not required to help me, and they essentially get nothing out of helping me. I also have no supervisor and no one I am directly reporting to. No one is telling me what to do or what to aim for. I feel like I I want to enjoy my job because it sounds like so much fun to be able to self-supervise, but I have no key performance indicators, it's great that you're using the lingo, to know if I'm doing well or if I'm behind. I fear that I may be too young to be left unsupervised. Any dubious advice on my situation would be incredibly appreciated. Remembering to be awesome, Krissa. This is a great question, and I appreciate it, and I also appreciate somebody dumping this much responsibility on you and saying, figure it out. It's not great management, but sometimes sometimes that is the path that uh, that's sort of like that a bit of a trial by fire to be like, you're going to learn a lot really quickly, and it may not produce the best result, and it may not be the most pleasant thing, but you are going to learn a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think you've got to, for lack of a better term, lean in to that lack of supervision and mm-hmm. just understand that you're not going to be perfect at this to start. I always try to tell myself whenever I'm doing something new um, that I never have the expectation that like my children are going to be amazing at something the first time they try it. Like I'm never like, oh, Alice, you're about to get on ice skates. You will be at the Olympics next month, right? Like <laughs> I put Alice on ice skates and she falls down a bunch and then she starts to fall down less and then she starts to get going and you know, pretty soon she can skate forwards. And I think you have to have that same set of expectations. And if the people you work with are giving you this kind of opportunity, like you've got to treat it as a learning experience rather than being like, oh God, all the things that I do wrong are going to be, you know, it's going to end my Mm -hmm. career or whatever. Uh, It's hard to do that, but I find uh, like, it sounds silly, but talking to myself the way I would talk to my children or someone else that I care about and love uh, is helpful. Yeah. I think also putting things into like bite-sized chunks, to, like trying to make a list of things that you actually want to get done. Um, and if you're having some pushback from the people that you kind of need to be supporting you, so you like have, have you know, people in the tech and startup community that you're going to be want to be featuring and you want them to be having useful and interesting conversations. It's almost like I think about events a lot, so I probably have a lot of specific advice for this specific question. But um, you're going to want to give those people opportunities to feel really cool and important. And it might to you seem like, of course, they feel that way. But I bet you that oftentimes they don't and they want those opportunities to have uh, to 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 have to be meaningful in their uh, in their world and to be put on something of a pedestal and to have opportunities to say the stuff that they uh, have learned and uh, and to inspire people. I think that if you can find the stuff that motivates people uh, to actually get up on stage and, and lend you a little bit of their expertise, that's really what uh, what is 
it's sort of the key to unlocking this. And that might mean learning a lot about them individually. It also might be learning about sort of how people talk about and get excited about entrepreneurialism, which probably means listening to lots of entrepreneurial podcasts and reading up on whatever all those things are and sort of like getting a little bit obsessed with it and, and driving your driving your brain into into that world. Um, and uh, and that's a lot to ask. Uh, and it's a lot of new information to to synthesize all at once. So I, uh, I appreciate you taking on a hard thing. And I know uh, I, I have both been in the situation and put people in the situation where uh, you feel too young to be left unsupervised. Uh, and it can be a really great experience and it can be a really hard one though. So thanks for your question. All right, Hank, let's move on to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. If you don't mind, I'll go first. All right. Okay, Hank. So uh, the Christmas period is very busy. The Christmas and New Year period, very busy uh, for English soccer teams. There is no holiday break. Uh, in the span of eight days, Wimbledon played four League One games, uh, which is a lot. And from those four games, they emerged with seven points, which is great. That is really not half bad. They beat Southend United 2-0 with goals from actually stunningly non-strikers. Two of our first non-striker goals of the season from Liam Trotter and Tom Soares. That 2-0 victory, by the way, matches AFC Wimbledon's biggest win of the year. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) Then they uh, got a 2-2 draw at uh, Gillingham, fighting back, it must be said. Uh, fighting back, they were down. Um, they were down in that game twice and fought back for a two-two draw. Goals from Harry Forrester and uh, a penalty from the Montserratian Messi Lyle Taylor. They and then and then before that they lost to Portsmouth and then before that they beat Bradford City two-one, which is probably the best uh, win of the year so far for Wimbledon. Bradford City are up there uh, at the top of the table. Lyle Taylor scored a 70th-minute goal uh, to put the Dons up two-one in that game and uh, held on for the win. I mean, unfortunately, despite this relatively good run of form, seven points from four games, AFC Wimbledon are currently uh, still in the League One relegation zone. They are in 21st place, uh, 27 points after 25 games. In order to stay up, Wimbledon are probably going to need like 51, 50, maybe 52 points. So uh, we've got... 21 games left to play, and from those 21 games, we need 24 or 25 points. So eight wins from 20 games, it's possible. Uh, It's going to be... It's stressful, Hank. There's no getting around it. It's a very stressful situation, even with 21 games to go. But hopefully, this good run of form will continue, and uh, we'll be okay. Well, I mean, it seems like things are going. I mean, that, that's good, right? You're yeah, yeah. If we score, so, if we get seven points from every four games that we play for the rest of the season, we'll stay up comfortably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, but you won't. It won't be more than that. You won't be like in the in the mid middle or anything. Uh, you know, the one of the weird things about this season in League One. Uh, is that AFC Wimbledon, despite being currently in the relegation zone, are only six points away from being in 11th. Right. Um, But, I mean, frankly, to be completely honest with you, do I care if we finish 19th or 11th? I do not. 
Uh, right. It should also be noted that the franchise currently plying its trade in Milton Keynes is in 19th, uh, and and Wimbledon are only two points off of uh, of mm. Milton Keynes, uh, which so is an interesting like turn of, them, of events. Though, that and that is our next league game. Oh, uh, wow. We'll be playing them away. But before then, uh, and actually after this, but uh, this game will have already happened by the time the podcast is uploaded. Uh, this weekend is our big Moneyball game against uh, oh, Tottenham so you Hotspur. Haven't, you haven't gotten your money yet. I didn't realize. I thought that had already happened. Oh, no. It's coming. Uh, January 6th, uh, AFC Wimbledon play Tottenham at Wembley Stadium. AFC Wimbledon, of course, currently undefeated at Wembley. Never been beaten at Wembley. <laughs> that may that may change on Saturday, uh, but currently never been beaten at Wembley. And I am taking a lot of hope. I, Tottenham have played a ton of football in the last uh, week and a half, and mm. they haven't looked that good. They look tired. <laughs> I think they're going to rest some of their stars, and I feel a miracle coming. All right, John. Well, uh, I'll be uh, watching Sports with John on Twitter to see what happens. And thank you to my phone for always keeping me updated now on my news page with uh, <laughs> with the, the scores, because these days I always know I always know how things are going. John, Mars News. Yes. Yes. So a, uh, some researchers just uh, wrote a paper. It's a uh, sort of a white paper kind of thing in uh, the journal Nature Geoscience, which is a really big scientific journal. The, the different way, like the way that we imagine how, where life would be and how to find evidence of life is very different if, you're, if you really want to think about how life might work on Mars. Mm. So like... Photosynthesis, of course, is what drives the vast majority of life on Earth. You either are you either are getting energy from the sun, or you're getting energy from things that got energy from the sun, and you're getting energy from things that got energy from things that are that got energy from the sun. Like it's just that's how the cascade works. And mm. um, there's very there is some what they call chemosynthesis, um, where you, you take uh, chemicals that have energy in them, and you go straight from the chemistry into the life and that happens at like deep sea vents and stuff um but almost all of it's photosynthesis and so we're sort of used to photosynthesis like life um and that's that's life that needs to be on the surface in order to get access to the sun but right. on mars one there it seems that there are a number of potential chemosynthesis candidates there's a lot of hydrogen there's a lot of maybe hydrogen sulfide and that stuff can be synthesized by bacteria into useful energy that they can then use to like continue to be alive. So th those things seem to exist. Um, and also the surface of Mars is not a great place. Um, there's no atmosphere. There hasn't been an atmosphere for a long time. There's no uh, magnetic field. So it's constantly being bombarded by high energy solar particles. And so that can really mess up any life forms strategies for self-replication and such. So, um, you know, the, the, the thing that these writers are, these researchers are saying in, in Nature Geoscience is like, probably if we're going to look for, like, really look for life on Mars, and this is a pressing question because Mars going to be sending the 2020 rover fairly soon, and that's sort of one of the first missions that has the express purpose of we're going to actually try and look for life on Mars rather than more geology-based missions like what uh, Curiosity's been doing. 
then this matters a lot. And um, if it's just going to be like collecting rocks from the surface and, and doing science on those rocks and maybe even collecting them for a later return to Earth in a sample return mission, then like if you're just picking from the surface, you're probably not going to find a lot because it's a pretty harsh place. And so they're um, encouraging uh, maybe like looking at can we be looking uh, like and, and collecting samples uh, and also analyzing samples from what are called mineralized fracture zones. Um, and I'm going to quote now. These would be places where there was fluid flow in the crust and where you get mixing between different fluids from different sources that have potentially different concentration uh, concentrations of important elements as well as dissolved hydrogen, which is a, a potential source of energy for microbes. Um, so like cracks in the crust where water may have been coming from above, but also groundwater would be mixing um, and bringing energy in the form of these chemosynthesis candidates uh, to to potential uh, life that would be looking to uh, to continue surviving using using chemical energy. So that's uh, that's what they're looking at. And and I don't know that this is like it, it does seem to be like if we're going to be finding life on Mars, that there's also some heat left, it would appear inside of Mars. So that heat um, like just sort of the way that, you know, Earth obviously has a lot of heat on the inside of it. That heat uh, is less there on Mars because it's a smaller planet and it has, has uh, it's a lot easier to cool off if you're a smaller thing. But uh, it seems like there's still some geothermal heat, which could be melting water, which could be meaning lots of good chemical soups down there for interesting things to happen. Um, but but what, what we are learning is if we don't find life on Mars, it's not going to mean that there is no life on Mars. There is going to be a lot of looking for a long, long time. Mm. Mm. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it is very strange to think about. And this is something I've been thinking about in the context of uh, your uh, book, Hank. Um, it is very strange to think about what first contact looks right. like outside of the traditional ways that we've thought about it or what you know what interacting with alien life looks like when you know we haven't even it's it's just so mind-boggling to think like well what would life look like if it weren't dependent upon photosynthesis right um, and we like, you know what would life look like if it didn't have dna or rna mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just mind-boggling mind really understand 100% of how it works with our version of life, um, right. you know, we, we certainly can can you know grind up a grind up a rock and see if there was any DNA in there, and we can be like, well, there must have been something alive on that rock. But if it's not based on DNA, you grind up that rock and you're like, well, I don't know what I'm looking for. Like like what yeah. is the complex complex molecules? What does self replication look like if it's not based on the same self replication systems we have? And also when you start to talk about like. Like it gets much more complicated when you you get out of just um, you know sort of uh, try not to be too jargony here. You get out of um, just self-replicating molecules um, and and self-replicating systems into like how do things transfer information and how do think how do like you know how how do we communicate? That would be a very weird thing, which yeah. Um, yeah, much, much, much more weird, and uh, and obviously such great places for science fiction to go. And I've I've always loved those kinds of books. Yeah, no, I think it's really fascinating. Well, aside from that, Hank, what did we learn today? 
Oh gosh, John, we learned that you are a prime candidate for um, for the advanced planning advisory at your nearby cemetery. They really, yeah, they're no, really it's, interested. It's in terrible news. It's terrible news. We learned yeah, that. Uh, John, John, uh, I, have an, I, I have a question. Is it possible okay. that this is like? Can't you be like? But I'm like a kind of a big deal. Wouldn't you just like pay me to be in your cemetery? It's basically like having another vice president. It's like your last brand deal. Oh my god, it's the last brand deal you'll ever make. I like it because it's dark and weird, but uh, that'd be a funny email to send back to be like, I have a proposal for you. How's about instead of paying for a plot in your cemetery, you pay me for a plot in your cemetery? I mean, you're welcome. I feel so good for all the people who made it through the Mars and AFC Wimbledon news so that they got that one. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. All All right. Uh, aside from that, we learned that a sponge is only a sponge unless it's more than a sponge. Uh, and we also learned that, dang it, I don't need a quesadilla maker. I like making quesadillas. I am the quesadilla maker, Mom. It's so true. Uh, Hank, thank you for potting with me. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back next week. Uh, in the meantime, we want to let you know about the people who make this podcast. This podcast is produced by Rosiana Hals Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. It's edited by Nicholas Jenkins. Our head of community and communications is Victoria Bongiorno. She's helping out with all that Patreon stuff. Thank you so much to all of our supporters on Patreon. You can support us for a dollar, and you can choose whether you prefer Mars News or AFC Wimbledon News, or really, quite frankly, neither. Thank you. Or for five dollars, you can get our upcoming podcast or our patron-only podcast, which we are about to record this week in Ryan's. Um, this podcast is also uh, the theme music. The theme music that you are hearing right now and at the beginning of the podcast are by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be awesome. awesome.